Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Right Club podcast. My co-host today is Catherine Nelson-Riley, our wonderful operations manager. And Catherine, who is our guest today? We've got Adrian, and he actually goes by AJ Hazzy. He is joining us today from out on the West Coast in Kelowna, and he's founder and the managing broker for Vantage West Realty, but he's also with Cash Offer Canada, and that is the arm with foreclosures in Canada and how he's turned that into a really great strategy for real estate investing. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed uh, listening to AJ talk because, you know, I think foreclosures is an area that not a lot of people know about. I think probably most people have heard about foreclosures coming out of the States, but not in Canada. And it is an entirely different process. Our laws are different, not, you know, just our privacy laws alone are different, but the whole process is different. So everyone, I hope you really enjoy this, this episode. There's lots of great information. And we encourage you to reach out to AJ if you're more, if you're interested in more information. So before we go to our episode, I, we just want to say thanks for joining us. Don't forget to go to therightclub.com where there's tons and tons of information for you, podcasts and videos and all sorts of great knowledge for you to just grab, dive into and grab. And we'll take it from there. So Catherine, shall we go to the episode? Absolutely. Let's get going. Welcome to the Right Club Podcast, where the focus is on helping you, the real estate investor, advance to the next level. And now let's join this week's hosts and share ways for you to customize your life. Hi, AJ, and welcome to the Right Club podcast. Great to talk to you and great to see you because we're on Zoom right now. You bet. Great to be here. And where are you from? See, blue sky, and it looks kind of nice out your window there. Yeah, it's okay today. It's still a little overcast, but we're in, in Kelowna, so we're that time of year where the clouds set in and hang around until about April, but uh, yeah, Kelowna, BC. All righty, Great. And today we're going to talk about Canadian foreclosures, which is a topic that both Catherine and I are really interested in. Uh, neither one of us knows very much about. So we're just going to throw it over to you. But you know what? Before we do that, we're going to do something a little different. Because before, when we're in our podcast, we've always asked lightning round questions at the end of the podcast. But right now, we're going to ask you a couple right up front and see what you have to say. So, AJ. If you had to choose one thing in the world that would be so much fun, what would it be? One thing that would be so much fun, I would like to do like a two-year cruise where you got to go all the way around the world with a big group of people and see every port in the whole world. Wow. <laughs> That's fabulous. That's a really good, good life goal to have. And who knows, right? Pretty Maybe fun, you'll pretty fun way to spend a couple of years. Yeah, it would be a great way to do that. As long as you came, well, no, you wouldn't need to come home. Who needs to come home? Come back home and you get residency again. And you, you know what? You can pop off and on different ports. Yeah. You can, if you have to run back and handle some business, you can do that. Sure, absolutely. That sounds great. Okay. Catherine, do you have a question? I do, actually. I know that there's a lot of people that do know you, but what is one fun fact about yourself that most people would not know about you? 
Fun fact, nobody knows. I mean, not a lot of people know that I spent my 20s as a competitive boxer. That was a lot of fun doing that, getting punched in the face. But I really enjoyed that and did some boxing coaching after that and found that really rewarding as well. Wow. So did you ever get seriously hurt with that? No, I was not on the receiving end of any real damage, but (laughs) it's definitely a dangerous sport. Yeah, it is. Well, good for you. I guess that you learned how to dodge the, the dodge the punches and that probably served you well in all kinds of things as you navigated the world of real estate and other business things. It's a good metaphor for life, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's get into it then. You bet. Canadian foreclosure. So tell like just set the stage for us. Like what do you do with that? Because we really know very little about it. And I'm pretty sure that most of our listeners know very little about Canadian foreclosures. And it's not just about Canada too. It's right. My province, I'm sure that there's many differences, but I'll let you take it from here. Sure. Yeah. And I'm in British Columbia, so I'm no expert on it at an individual province level, but I've, I've done some foreclosure work in Arizona and I've done some foreclosure work in BC and they're very different from each other. There's some pretty big differences between even just how the whole system operates in uh, different jurisdictions. But in British Columbia, we did see a pretty big opportunity in the foreclosure world, kind of starting in 2010, 2009 even, all the way through to say 2014 when the market recovered. And in going through that process, I learned a lot. I was down at the courthouse every Wednesday representing you know, a handful of clients on a handful of different properties. and The system is pretty simple in BC anyway. When a property has gone into default, the banks will get conduct of sale and that takes them, you know, depending on the legalese in their contracts, anywhere from sort of six months to a year. Once they have conduct, they will list it with a real estate agent. That agent will market it. And usually the price will come down sequentially until it gets the property comes under contract. That first buyer who ties the property up, so to speak, with conditions, We'll move their way through their condition process the same way you would with any other property. And then when they're ready to remove their conditions and firm the deal, that is when the court date is set. And now that's not where the, you know, the journey ends with buying. Now they have to go to court and wait and see how many people show up. And so there's two different types of buyers. There's the sort of the first buyer that gets the ball rolling. And then there's the competing buyers that show up to the court date and at the court, the realtor will have to get up. It was along with the lawyer and demonstrate that they properly marketed the property, et cetera, et cetera. And then present to the judge, all of the sealed bid offers. And so there's a bit of an art and science to kind of surveying the landscape, seeing how many competitors are there, knowing kind of how to sort of ladder your bid based on who you see and and who showed up. But effectively it's a sealed bid auction and provided that there's no subjects and the deposits attached and the right languages in the agreement, the judge will just award the deal to the highest bidder. And sometimes it's a great deal. Sometimes it's an average deal. And so that's where, you know, you can't get caught up in the auction effect and end up overpaying just because there's 10 or 20 people there. You've got to be disciplined and know your numbers just like you would with any other investment property. But yeah, it can represent some really good opportunity. The downside, I guess, not, I shouldn't say the downside, but the somewhat frustrating aspect to it is you can spend a lot of time, effort, energy, sometimes money with inspections, appraisals, et cetera, on due diligence, only to be outbid by somebody who is likely just to move into the house. We call that sort of an end user. And they're often willing to pay more than what an investor would, because we have to you know, factor in our selling costs, et cetera, 
a lot of times in what we're paying for things. But yeah, that's the process in a nutshell. Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit because I think there's a lot of information in there. And I was going, okay, wait a minute. I know that in the States, like you said, Arizona, there's a huge difference, right? Even in just the, at the conceptual level or contextual level, whatever you want to call it, in terms of when a property is actually foreclosed um, and, and the process by which the banks go through that. So my understanding is, and please correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. is that unlike the states in Canada and BC, I'm assuming, a property cannot be sold for mere pennies on the dollar or can't be seized for mere pennies on the dollar. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So in, in the U.S., they can get conduct to sale much quicker. They have the ability to do what's called a short sale, which allows them to sell actually prior to it going through the court process. And so most of the foreclosures are sold as a, what's called a short sale. We don't have that in Canada. It has to go through a due process. It has to be demonstrated that it was marketed. It has to be demonstrated that everything that could be done to elevate the competition for the home was done so that the person who previously, who got foreclosed upon has the highest likelihood of getting out of the debt and potentially even recapturing some of their equity. So the big difference, I guess, between some of the states that foreclosures were very popular in, like say Nevada, Arizona, they have what's called a no fault or like a no recourse state. So you can give the keys back. If you go through a period of time where you're underwater on the home, you can hand the keys back and that shortfall doesn't follow you around. Whereas in Canada and BC for certain, if there's a shortfall that attaches to what's called your personal covenant. So essentially your credit rating, and you now have that as a debt to the bank that is not forgivable. And so that, for that reason, we need to go through a process to make sure that situation occurs the least amount of times. Okay. So when you say shortfall, so, so let's back up a little bit here. So someone has a home, they've def- they can't make the mortgage payments. Basically that's what it is. Right. Yep. And I mean, this doesn't happen after a month or two because all kinds of things go on in the background. So say six months or a year, however long it takes, the bank finally says, okay, we are taking the house back because you cannot pay the mortgage, the debt, basically. Mm-hmm. So at that point, then the house is what happens to the property. Does the bank then go to the court and ask for, I don't know, I don't know what they ask for something basically to say, okay, this property is now ours because mm-hmm. the owner could not pay as per the mortgage agreement, could not pay the debt. So the first step is they go to court and ask for what's called order nisi. So they give them a period of time. There's a redemption period, maybe it's six months. The end of the six months, if they haven't redeemed, then the next step was get conduct of sale. Once they have conduct of sale, now they have the ability to market the property. And typically the default, you know, the mortgage or the mortgagee is still in the home and hasn't made their payments for some time and is going to continue to be there while the property is marketed and shown and, and right up to the date where it's sold. When I was, I want to back up because I know I was, I was talking about the shortfall and that could be confusing for the listeners. The shortfall isn't the payments that they didn't make. The shortfall that I'm referring to is actually the difference between what they owe and what the property sold. So in a circumstance, let's say they, they bought a home for 500,000 and they put, you know, 
5% down. So they might've had a mortgage for 475. In fact, it might be higher because of the CMHC premiums, et cetera. Then what ends up happening is they might be behind three or six payments by the time this thing goes to court. There might be another $25,000 in, in payments that get added to the principal. So their debt might be 500, 510,000 on this property. And because the market's come down maybe 10% since they bought it, let's say, hypothetically, the home sells for 450, there's the legal costs, there's the court costs, and then there's the realtor costs. There might only be $410,000 of proceeds by the time the dust settles. And so that shortfall that I was referring to is actually the $90,000 difference between what they technically owe the bank and what the proceeds were to distribute. Okay. And it's that $90,000 in this case that is basically attached as uh, to the credit history of the mortgagee. Correct. And that'll follow them around for life. Yep. Oh, really? For life? Well. Well. It's, however long that is. <laughs> the bankru bankruptcy, all that. Yeah. Uh, okay. So a long time. All right. Sure. Okay. Got it. Now, are there any occasions when the house actually sells for more than, I guess there's two questions here. I'm going to talk about marketing in a minute, but does the house actually sells for more than what the mortgagee owes? And in that case, the debt that's paid off, the mortgage is paid off and all the fees are paid off. Now the money that is, that remains, say there's a quote profit of, I don't know, $25,000. Does that money then go to the mortgagee? Correct. Anything over and above would go to the mortgagee. Now, if you think about it logically, given that there's so much time that happens between when they get served notice and when this will eventually, when they will lose the ability to sell it themselves or the bank then gets conduct, there's sometimes six months to a year of time in there. If they have enough equity that there would be money left over at the end of the day, then it begs the question, why were they not more proactive and just listing it themselves and not having a foreclosure on their if you are in a situation where you've been, you've received the notice that you're going into foreclosure, your very first move is to determine whether you can sell it right now for enough to clear the minus, get some equity and avoid the whole process because the legal bills will mount. The costs of the court process are very expensive. The chances of you having anything left over if it goes all the way through the process are nil, which segues me to where the real opportunity in this is for the investors. It's not necessarily, although going to court can get you a good deal. Where the real opportunity lies is striking a win with somebody who's in that situation, but still has time. It's the pre-foreclosure stuff where I think we can help people who are in this terrible situation where they can't make their payments, as well as strike a deal that makes a lot of sense for the investor. This keeps the legal fees out of it. In many cases, some of the realtor fees out of the equation, which means there's a better deal to be had and there's more proceeds to be kept for that homeowner. So that's in a perfect world, we don't see a whole bunch of homes being sold through the court process. We actually facilitate these sales in advance and you create a pipeline of those deals. So that's where the, a lot of these sort of cash offer type companies that they come into play at that stage. And we actually have our own, we have Cash Offer Canada, which can make a, you know, an instant cash offer on any property. And uh, you know, yeah, they're bought at a discount, but that discount price represents a better net dollar to the person in that situation than rolling the dice on the whole court process. Okay. So I'm going to come back to the, the pre-foreclosure in a minute, but I, I do want to ask about, you, you mentioned marketing the property. That it has to be, I guess, your due diligence on marketing the property. 
So what exactly does that mean? And how, if you get to court, how is that, I guess, proven? It's very detailed. They, the bank themselves has a high bar to clear in terms of demonstrating to the court. So they pass that down to the realtor. So when the realtor takes the the foreclosure listing on, they're going to have to document every single piece of marketing that they put out. They have to document all the showings. They have to ensure that they followed up with all the inquiries. All of that needs to be presented so that when the bank and their lawyer stands in front of the judge, they say, look, we hired an agent. They, they did a great job. It was on the market for 42 days. They had, you know, 25 inquiries. They facilitated 15 showings. We received, you know, X, all the way down the line so that it can be demonstrated that this property um, received a fair shake. It's all done in the reporting. And that's where the agent themselves, usually most of the foreclosure listings consolidate around a few listing agents who really understand that process. So this is really interesting. I, I'm, I'm finding this fascinating. So thanks very much for being with us today. So how do you find the potential foreclosure properties? Like you've mentioned, you've got Cash Offer Canada. And I guess it's a two-part. You've got the Cash Offer Canada, but how did you initially get into all of this to begin with? Like this seems to be an, a, most people don't know about this particular real estate investing strategy. Yeah. So I want to make sure there's a couple of questions sort of embedded into yeah, one question. Sorry. How, how, yeah, no worries. How I got into it, I guess, is probably where to start. The, you know, I started my real estate firm in 2008. And so that really forced us to become real students of where we were in the market. The banks had effectively, you know, turned off the tap. So most of the deals we were doing were creative in some fashion. And most of the buyers who were willing to buy during that period of time were investors. And so I, being a real estate investor myself at the time, I had a decent portfolio and this was sort of what I was fascinated with. So I just became like a real student of this type of real estate. And then simultaneously, I was down in Arizona because we had a par dollar at that time. So that was a really exciting time to be buying real estate. And they were a little ahead of us in the foreclosure process. They went into their recession in 2007. We didn't go in until 2008. So we had a little period of time where we were still making money like the sun was going to shine forever. We had a par dollar. And so we were able to parlay that into some good deal making down in Arizona. By going through that, I realized that there's a huge amount of opportunity in that. And so when I came back and started marketing myself as foreclosure specialist, investor-friendly realtor, that kind of thing, I was able to build a very long list of cash buyers and investors and people who could do a deal if I found the right opportunity. And so, you know, that was the first go around. It was just doing what we could to kind of keep the deal flow happening. The second go around in 2018, I sort of saw some writing on the wall. This is all pre-pandemic. We never could have guessed that the pandemic would happen and result in this like silly inflationary boom that we had. But in 2018, a few things happened in our market. We had some new legislation that came. We had a, especially in British Columbia, we had a speculation tax. We had a foreign buyer tax. There was a number of sort of punitive things that were threatening to put the brakes on the market. And we had just come through 15, 16, 17, which were really hot years. Everything that I knew about cycles told me that 2018, we were going to enter into a down cycle. So I thought I will be prepared this time. And rather than doing these deals on a one-off basis, I will put an entity together that is essentially designed to operate and take advantage of a down market. And so I started raising some capital just with friends, family members, past clients who I'd done right by over the years. 
And we raised a couple million bucks. We went to the bank, put together a nice operating line of credit that we could now have, you know, a nice amount of buying power. And so when things actually did turn in 2018 for the first portion of that, we were able to buy a number of properties at a pretty significant discount and then take some of those properties, turn them into rent to own opportunities. That was really the kind of the best deals where we were buying them in pre-foreclosure or buying them at a nice discount in the beginning, fixing them up, and then putting a rent to own tenant in there that would buy it at a premium in a year to three years time. Those deals worked out very well, but it was in going through that process, uh, building up that fund, that cash offer Canada was born. And so now it's, you know, it's been operating for four years, five years now, and we're ready to rock for this next little phase of the market, which I think will be ripe with opportunity. So do you think that, well, that was going to be my next question. You really think that given what's happening now with all the, I guess, restrictions that the banks and the governments and then they're happening and, you know, well, every time I turn around, somebody's saying, you know, the R word recession, but do you think that this is going to be sort of another down cycle when you're going to see more foreclosures or the potential for foreclosures? Yeah, I think with everything that's going on in the world and with interest rates, et cetera, I think it's hard not to be a little bearish about the market. And I, I think that we will go through a period where there's going to be some pain. You've got two thirds of Canadians have not had the mortgage reset at these rates. So you got a lot of people right now that are able to afford the home that they have predicated on it being two and a half percent interest. But when they get their renewal, if interest rates haven't come down by the time that happens, I don't know that they qualify for the home that they're in. And so there's going to be a lot of people who don't qualify for the home that they're in. And so that I think will put a number of properties onto the market. We're already seeing that in some markets where days on markets going up, inventory is climbing, sales are dropping. And so when you have increased inventory and decreased sales, the months of inventory, which is sort of like the number one indicator of market health starts to balloon. Like for, for example, in our market, we're at nearly a year's worth of inventory. Whereas this time last year, we had one month of inventory. So that's a pretty stark contrast. Buyer's markets are anything north of six months. So we're double the inventory you would need to be to be a buyer's market. What that means is downward pressure on price. That's the only thing that can happen in those situations. And I think it gets worse before it gets better. So in that period of time, there will be opportunity. Well, so how do you find those pre-foreclosure deals then? Because I mean, there are people who are going to look after themselves and they'll put their property up for sale or, you know, just sort of normal stuff. And then there's people who win far too long and it's going through the courts. But in between that, there's the, as you say, the pre-foreclosure mm -hmm. period. So how do you find those people? How do you market to them? And how do you present to them? Because it's, I would imagine it's a fairly sensitive approach. It has to be. You're talking about a lot of dollars, people's pride and egos and their self-worth and everything else all wrapped up in this rather tangled web, right? Yeah. You hit the nail on the head. It really does require a lot of empathy to be able to operate in the space. But to answer your question, how you find them, in Canada, we don't have the same kind of data sharing that they have in the U.S. So like in the U.S., you can buy lists of people who are behind on their payments. Like you literally can buy that list and you can market direct to them using a direct mail program. We don't have that in Canada. So in Canada, you really need to go quite wide with the marketing. So for us, what we've done 
is we've just, we've got digital marketing billboard displays that just say, get an instant cash offer on your home. Same thing with our billboard. And so you can go quite wide with like a, you know, mass and digital media campaign as someone who can give someone an instant cash offer that the hook speaks for itself. If you're in the position where you need an instant offer, that'll resonate with you. But I think more important than that, and maybe for the listeners that don't have a big budget for marketing, getting known as somebody who can do a deal quickly, getting known to a group of realtors as a cash buyer who can do a deal quickly, who's not a perpetual tire kicker, but someone who actually consummates the deals. Once you have that reputation, people call you when there's situations. I get realtors, even though I'm a competitor for, for them, they'll call me at the end of a listing when it's time for, you know, or they'll, you know, even on their own personal properties, if they need something, oftentimes I'll get a call saying, Hey, I know you can do a deal quickly, or I know you're creative. What can we do here? If you have a reputation as a deal maker and someone who can do a deal in a short amount of time, then you start to attract a lot of deal flow that way. And I think that's the lesson is become known as a person who gets deals done and you usually have more deal flow than you have money. Okay. So you basically get known. And again, you have to, it's kind of a chicken and eggs in a way, isn't it? You have to have the money to be able to go in to do the cash deals because I'm assuming most of these are cash deals. Is that correct? Look, you can have financing. You can offer a cash offer, but still have financing. Basically what you're saying is I I'll buy the home how I finance. It's my business. Okay. But yeah, I mean, you know, the, the cleanest way to do it is to have enough cash to be able to pay cash. Then you can offer like a seven day close or 10 day close. That's what a lot of times what people need. And if you can give them a little bit of time as well, like you talk about being sensitive to their situation, what they often need is cash quickly, but a move that's a little slower. Right. right. And so that's sort of the, you know, certainly they're getting the certainty, they're getting the convenience, they're getting the cash up front. They're not getting a premium price for the home, but you're giving them some of these other benefits and by letting them take a month or a couple of weeks to uh, move to their next spot and helping them find a rental and things like that, that, uh, you know, earns you some favor for sure. Okay. Well, I mean, it goes a long way. I mean, that's just human kindness, isn't it? Yeah. These are people who for whatever reason, it's a terrible time of their lives and it's really rough. They got to get out and they, it's a lot of disruption all the way around. So I can understand that. Well, they, they and, also were sold a bill of goods, right? They were told by their leaders that we're not even thinking about raising the interest rates. Mm -hmm. And then they were told by the mortgage professional or the real estate agent, myself included, I, I bought into the idea that the variable rate had always been the better play for the last 80 years. So I have my own mortgages on variables and had advised many to do the same and had taken the advice or taken the statement at face value from, you know, from our finance minister that they're not even thinking about raising the rates, that rates will stay low in low interest for a very long time. And so then you go and you take these massive amounts of debt on based on that information, and then they completely pull the rug on you. So in a lot of cases, these people, it's not like they're unsophisticated or it's not like they just maybe naively believed the people that they ought to be able to rely upon on what to do. So I do have a lot of empathy for people. There's some really good people that I talk to that, you know, it's not like they're not deadbeats. These people just, they got the wrong advice or they, you know, they just, your well, payment they got caught. They got, got caught. caught. Your payment gets, you know, doubles on you and you're on a fixed income. What are you going to do? Right. You're always going to prioritize your kids being able to eat before your mortgage or. Yeah. 
Yep, exactly, exactly. Can you talk a little bit about the difference then between the states and Canada? I mean, you've talked a little bit about it, but more you know, like Arizona, because are you still in there? I guess that's the first question. Are you still doing uh, deals down in Arizona? Yeah, in a different capacity. We're not seeing uh, foreclosure stuff happening there yet. And it's for the same reason it's not happening here a ton right now. We've seen it increase and it's starting to happen. We're having more pre-foreclosure conversations. Actual properties moving through the court system have not seen this big spike yet. We're just not there. Where you need to be is on the sort of three to four to five year timeline from when these people bought. If they bought it before that, they have more equity than they would need. They'll never get foreclosed upon because you have to be, two things have to happen. You have to be upside down on the price, meaning it's worth less than you owe. And you have to be behind on payments. There's not that many people in that situation. If you bought three, four years ago, the property market's been very good for the last few years. It's only gone into, in our market anyway, into this little down cycle in the last year. It's only down 10%. You might still be up 10 or 20%. You're just going to sell it. It's not getting foreclosed upon. You're just going to sell it and go become a renter for a while. That's the same situation that's happening in the U.S. So where this sets up is as we get into 24 and 25, as of the people who bought at the peak in 2021 and 22 get to that stage where it's time for them to reset their two and three year terms, which is what a lot of people got into two and three year terms. That's when you start to see these people who have those two things happening, which is they're upside down on the property and they're behind on the payments. Right. Yeah. And that makes sense. Absolutely. Because you're right. People who bought properties 10, 15 years ago, or even five, six years ago, didn't get caught in that, that whatever, that peak in 21 and 2021, 22, where Prices were insane, right? And so people do get caught. And whether it's not good or it's not bad, it's just the way it is. And it's unfortunate. And yet there are people like you to help them. Because in the end, people move on and properties are sold. There will be another cycle, right? There always is. What goes up comes down and what comes down goes up. You know, it's funny you say that. I have clients that bought with me in 2007 when they were offering zero down 40 year amortizations. And, you know, we call those the ninja mortgages, no income, no job, no assets, and no problem. You're approved. Well, they went through that 2000, their mortgage reset comes around in 2011. They're upside down. They ended up going through a foreclosure process. They, they lost the house. And now five years later, they're able to rebuy again. They come back into the system as a rent-owned buyer as they're rebuilding their credit. And now they've got, um, they've come back into the system and they own a primary residence and a rental property again. But they went through a situation of losing their primary home because they bought at the peak. By the time their mortgage reset, they couldn't afford it. They were upside down. But they did recover and they did get their foot back on the property ladder, albeit with a creative program like Rent-to-Own. Then at the end of the term, they were able to buy. And then a couple of years later, they were able to keep going and buy another rental property. So there is always hope for, for folks on that side of things. I've seen it happen a number of times. It's, it's an educational process and education is expensive. It doesn't matter where you're going, whether you're going to, you know, an Ivy League school or, you know, one of the top universities, or if it's a school of hard knocks, it just education is expensive. I joke around that I have multiple Ivy League educations. They're pills I've swallowed over the years. Well, I think just very quickly before we go into the lightning round, 
Can you just give us a brief little encapsulation here of how you got into real estate and into real estate investing? Are you looking to create generational wealth and get one step closer to financial freedom? Then Better Mortgage Select is the mortgage brokerage for you. Whether you're a first-time homebuyer or seasoned investor looking to grow your portfolio, Better Mortgage Select is here to help you achieve your financial goals. With over two decades of experience, our team of financial planning consultants have perfected our own unique system that tailors every step to suit your financial needs. For a free consultation, reach out to us today at info at bettermortgageselect.ca or give us a call at 905-569-8326. We're here to help you get started and prove why we're the top ranked mortgage team in Canada. You bet. I was a beach bum at 19 traveling in Australia with my buddies and we got tired of spending 30 bucks a night on hostels each. We realized that between the five of us, we were spending more than four grand a month. So we rented a property that had five bedrooms. And then as they started going home, I stayed and became kind of a pseudo landlord, even though I was renting, but I was subletting rooms. I figured out that I could zero cost my living situation by just renting these rooms out at a premium and living for free in the master bedroom. So eventually I got deported from Australia for overstaying my visa. On the way home, I told my dad, I said, oh man, I'm not gonna be able to replicate this gravy situation that I had. He goes, well, you could do it again. You just have to buy a five bedroom house here. And I thought to myself, well, how am I going to buy a house? I don't have any credit. So I hooked up with, he told me about the concept of a joint venture. I hooked up with a buddy that had great credit who didn't go traveling after high school. And I had some cash. He had some credit. We joint ventured. We bought a five bedroom house and we both lived for free. And that was the start. And in the process of buying it, I actually fell in love with the process of looking around and, and trying to source deals. And so I, um, went and took a realtor out for lunch. That was a few years older than me. He was 23 at the time I was 19 or 20. And by the end of the lunch, I was convinced that this was the career for me and got into it from there. And then, yeah, through joint ventures, was able to buy a number of properties over the next few years. And then eventually, you know, we all know what happened with the market between 2003, four, five, six, seven. So was able to parlay that into something a little more substantial, but that's how I got into it. Wow. That's, that's pretty cool. And I do like the Australian part of the story. That's good. Yeah. It doesn't, yeah, that's excellent. But on that note. If you could go back to your 18-year-old self, we're just going to go into the uh, lightning round now, but if you could go back to your 18-year-old self, uh, what advice would you give yourself now looking back? Establish and protect your credit. Like just, it is everything in this world having good credit. And I kind of didn't really know that and didn't do anything about it until I got back. And it took me a couple of years to establish that. And then because I got back, didn't have any credit and I was business for self right away. Like I never had a job, got into real estate right away. So I wasn't truly financeable till, you know, I was five years into my career. I would suggest to my 18 year old self, start with a job that can get you a mortgage, then work that job until you're ready to go out and become an entrepreneur. And then in that period of time, protect your credit. Like it is absolutely the most important little golden goose that you have. Establish it as soon as you can get multiple credit lines, you know, like credit legs so that you have the ability to build that credit rating. So the banks will take you seriously at the age of 20. That would be my advice to myself. Except then you wouldn't have gone to Australia and, and have that fabulous experience, right? Well, good point, Laura. But what I did do was my brother, who was seven years younger than me, 
when he went to Australia before he left at age 18, I gave him that advice and I said, you go ahead and buy a couple things, go get like a Bay card and one of those, you know, whatever credit they would give a young kid and set up automatic payments on it so you can forget about it, but go buy a hundred dollar item. And so he had a little credit card, a little purchase he'd made, and he had sort of systematically paid it off over 12 months of automatic payments. So when he came back from his two-year trip, because he did the same thing as me, he went away for two years, he had perfect credit. Get an 800 credit square when he got back. Wow. I had to start from scratch. So it is possible <laughs> to have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> I guess it is. That's really good advice. And okay, I guess I did question. get a chance to, to tell my 18-year-old self what I would do because yeah, I got yeah, a chance to do that with my brother. <laughs> okay, last question then. What would you say is the one attribute that's made you successful? If you had to choose one. Yeah. I mean, this one's obvious. It's the ability to take a punch and get back up. It's the ability to keep <laughs> mowing through <laughs> adversity because yeah, everything good in this world comes on the other side of adversity. Nothing comes easy and you have to be willing to fight through it. Most people quit way too soon. Right. And so it's just being able to forge ahead and, and push your way through adversity because on the other side of it is where all the glory is. All right. And we went right back around to the boxing. So good for you. There we go. <laughs> okay, AJ, how can people reach you? What's the best way for people to reach you? You can follow me on, on Instagram or Facebook. It's AJ Hazzy at AJ Hazzy. And yeah, love to connect with you online there. All right. Super. Thank you very much. It was great fun. Enjoy Kelowna and the Okanagan. And I'm assuming the fires are pretty much over now. Yeah, you bet. Okay, good. We're Bye. safe and sound. Thanks for good. asking. All right. Until next time, then, thank you so very much. Appreciate you guys. Take care. Bye. Hey, Catherine, I think I learned a lot about foreclosures in BC, particularly because AJ is in BC. Such an interesting concept and so different from what I know about what goes on in the States. So I think that there's a lot, there's a lot to learn there, isn't there? Absolutely. And the nice thing that AJ has also done some of the foreclosure process down in Arizona, I really like that he was able to do a comparative about the foreclosure process in the States versus the foreclosure process in Canada and how to go about doing it and also how to go about funding the deals and finding, uh, finding what the process is. I thought it was quite fascinating. The thing that I have always really admired and respected about AJ is Everything that he has done has been on a premise of a win. So when he is finding and working with people, because as was discussed, I mean, this is a really um, horrible time in people's lives when they find themselves into a position of having to sell their house due to whatever the reasons are or the market or changing in rules and regulations. So I just have found this to be a really fascinating episode. Yeah, that's great. Anyway, reach out to AJ if you'd like more information. And as always, we want you to go customize your life and have a great evening and day. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Right Club podcast, where the focus is on helping all levels of real estate investors advance to the next level and help you customize your life. Be sure to tune in next week at rightclub.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you get a few seconds, please rate the podcast wherever you're listening. It helps the show get noticed by others like you. And we truly appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe.